Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Kelly Corrigan. Her book is called Glitter and Glue, and it's just out from Valentine. And I'm delighted to have you on the podcast today, Kelly. Thanks, Ron. So you've written a couple of, of books about your life before, but this one really sort of zeroes in on a very specific time frame for the most part. Yeah. Let's set the stage a little bit. It's it's 1992, you're fresh out of school, and, and what's going on with you? I had this big idea that I was going to become interesting with a capital I, and I wanted to be this super adventurous, kind of thrill-seeking person who would then, on the heels of some sort of odyssey, have great stories to tell. And I always wanted to be a writer, and so I thought the more outrageous stuff I did, the more fodder I would have for future books and the more kind of life experience I would have to draw upon when writing. And I was in a rush to acquire that life experience. So I thought I'd take this shortcut. And so I bought a round the world ticket that I found on sale in the back of the New York Times. And I grabbed my best friend from college and we started a big trip that we hoped would last for a year. And we had limited funds. We were traveling with American Express Traveler's Jacks at the time. I'm sure they do it completely differently now. And they were starting to run out, and so we thought it was time to find a job. You were in Australia. We were in Australia. We had had some good fun in Hong Kong and then a big month in Thailand, and we sat on a beach basically in Koh Samui. And then we got to Australia, and we banged around Melbourne for a while, and then we went to Adelaide, and then we got to Sydney, and then we started to feel like that this trip is going to be over in a month if we don't watch it. And so we started looking for jobs, and we really wanted to be waitresses or bartenders or something that was more exciting and social and where we might meet some cute boys and those jobs just were not easy to come by and so we answered ads in the paper for nannies. Before we talk a little bit about the job that you ended up getting, let's backtrack a little bit and talk about how your parents felt about you going on this trip because this ties in to yeah, one of sure. the themes of the book. So, you know, my father thought it was fantastic. My father thinks almost everything is fantastic. He's slightly indiscriminate in his enthusiasm. And my mother thought that it was ridiculous, indulgent, a waste of time, kind of moving the opposite direction from where I should be moving, which was towards having my own health insurance and paying off any college debt, you know, becoming a responsible adult. And this was the exact opposite direction for her. And so we brawled about it a little bit, but I didn't really need her because I had saved my own money and I was going come hell or high water. But what I don't, I don't think I really appreciated that in addition to her thinking that, you know, I was doing a bunch of stuff that no one really ever needed to do. I think she was also afraid. And in 1992, if your daughter went traveling, there was absolutely no way for her to find me. So if if my father had died, he was sick while I was away. If he had died while I was away, they would have had to wait for three or four or five weeks for me to call home to tell me. I don't think I really uh, could have appreciated how unnerving it was for her to take her kid to JFK and say goodbye and, and not have any way to find me. This was really sort of representative of the relationship that you had with your, your father and your mother all throughout your life growing up. Absolutely. I mean, my dad is what I used to call a life eater, and he's uh, up for anything, and he's always ready for a road trip. He's just a yes person, and my mom is a no person. And part of what's on the line in Glitter and Glue is trying to figure out, were they just born that way, or did they make each other that way? I mean, was my mother kind of painted into a corner a little bit because if he's going to be the glitter 
then that only leaves one job for her, which is the glue. Or if, you know, maybe he was always that way, and he when he met her, he thought this is the perfect match for for my sort of skills and interests, is this woman who has a much different set of uh, worldviews. Now, coming back to Australia, you do land a nanny situation, and the family that you end up with, they have a very particular need for a nanny. Right? Yeah, it's awful. So I, I worked for this other family. They had this really big, beautiful house with views of the Sydney Opera House. <laughs> but they were a little bit uh, slave drivery. And on the second night, they asked me to scrub their pool tiles. And I said, is that in addition to taking care of the kids? Or is that part of the job? And the next day, I was fired. And so I was really in a rush to get working. There had been an ad in the paper the week before, and it was still there the following week, which was that a widower uh, was looking for a nanny for his seven-year-old and his four-year-old. So I took it, and I was the first nanny since the mother had died, and they had been making it work with friends and neighbors and family members, but it had been several months, and it was time to try, at least try out the nanny thing for them to see if they could kind of go it alone as the people around them went back to their regularly scheduled lives. So here you are, you're like 22 years old, you've decided to go around the world and gallivant and have madcap adventures. Mm -hmm. Now you are the caretaker for... Yeah. yeah, I was wiping noses and making Vegemite sandwiches and, you know, making people go to bed when they didn't want to. I had gotten pretty far afield from what the whole point of the trip was. And, you know, I had this funny expression that I was so into when I was young. Uh, things happen when you leave the house. And then there I was in a house where nothing at all seemed to be happening. It was like watching paint dry. It was so quiet. And they're actually fairly introverted people. So it was even quieter maybe than, than your average house. But I found that there were things to be learned there and probably things that would serve me much better than anything I might have learned bungee jumping. Chief among those lessons, it sounds like, was being thrust into this situation with these these two kids who no longer had a mother. You really began to reevaluate your own relationship with your mother. I did, and and just being there sort of upended all kinds of assumptions and beliefs that I had held about my mom. You know, my mom and I have like nothing in common, even to this day. I mean, we're not birds of a feather. I'm not the apple that fell right there underneath the tree. I rolled. Consequently, you know, I stopped really paying attention to her in many ways. And I stopped valuing her. And I stopped thinking that she knew things that would be good to know. And then I was in this house, and for several reasons, she was constantly on my mind. One was that I was doing the work that I had always witnessed her doing, living in a house and running a household. You know, she didn't go away to college. She never worked in the corporate world. So this is what she did. And then a second reason she was so present was that the kids were really interested in her. So when I got letters, the kids would really want to see what it would be that a mother would write to a child. And they were really eager to see a picture of her. I had to, I had to ask her to send a picture down so they could see her before I left. And then the other thing was really fluky, which is that my mom really loves this Willa Cather book, My Antonia. And they happen to have a copy of it in that house. And I had never read it because I don't do things that my mother tells me to do. But there I had all the time in the world. And I had this sort of newfound curiosity in my mother and, and what made her tick. Now, at this stage in your life, things have pretty much done a, a 180 in that, you know, sort of the framing sequence for you telling the story shows us that, you know, when things are on the line now, 
your mom is the first person you end up calling. She is. She's sort of my my first responder. So in that way, crisis has made us close. But in another way, nothing's changed at all. Like I still don't totally get her. And we still aren't um, natural best friends that sit around and just gab all day. I often feel confounded by her, but I don't care anymore. It doesn't matter to me anymore. I'm not trying to change her anymore. I don't want her to be uh, more outgoing or more spendy or more liberal or, you know, more like me. I think that the way she is is fine and she has every right to be that way. And, you know, all these situations keep coming up. For instance, my parents just had their 50th wedding anniversary. And my father wanted a party for 300 people, and my mother wanted the five of us to go out to dinner at the Marion Cricket Club, same place we've been going out to dinner my whole life. Probably she would order the exact same food, and we'd go around 5.30 and be home by 8. For a long time, that would make me crazy that she didn't want to celebrate things or mark the occasion the way that I did and my brothers did and, of course, my father did. But when this came up, and, and everybody was against her, you know, my dad and my brothers were saying, Mary, that's crazy, come on, 50 years, we got to do something. I was the one who was advocating for her, and I said, you know, she never gets her way, just for the record. We never do it the way she wants to do it. We always prevail. All the loud mouths, all the outgoing people in this family, which is, it's a four-to-one situation. Maybe this time we should just give her what she wants. Maybe we should just all go for a really nice dinner. At the same place she likes to go, she's comfortable there, she knows what to order. They'll pour her wine over ice the way she likes it, and she'll be home in bed by 8. And maybe she deserves that, that we would all just accept her. As a parent yourself, do you find that you're replicating that pattern, that you're becoming the glue to for your children? I definitely, I definitely am more of a warrior than my husband. I'm more inclined to be strict. I'm more inclined to hand out a bigger punishment. He's pulling me away from my natural tendencies, which are to do it exactly the way my mother did it. There's something about the way she sees the world that feels very safe and very black and white. It's unambiguous. And maybe that's just her generation, but it wasn't for her about good times and bonding and introspection. You know, it was work. It was a job to be done and a job with serious repercussions. Sometimes I think the things that I worry about with my kids, she wouldn't give a second thought to. You know, she's she would just she just was getting it done. You know, the work was get yourself some good grades, figure out how to make decisions that are going to keep you safe, and get yourself into college. All this self-actualization stuff, I think she finds amusing at best and downright irritating at worst. What drew you to telling this story now at this time? It seems like some of the events that you write about in the framing sequence Mm -hmm. probably had some influence on that, but let's talk a little bit about that. So I've had cancer and the woman that I nannied for had died of cancer and her kids were young and my kids were young. And so I had thought of her uh, over over the years. She had been on my mind and it wasn't lost on me what an incredible thing it was that I had witnessed a family survive the loss of their mother. And then I knew kind of what that looked like on a day-to-day level, uh, you know, at least on the surface. So, I mean, that, that brought the story back to me. But also, I think, to be totally honest with you, I think that there is some stuff happening around me now with marriages breaking up and husbands being irresponsible that makes me value more and more the people who do, like, kind of the gritty day-to-day stuff that is family life. You know, it takes a lot of stamina to stay and to fight 
and to make these relationships right. And not everybody does it, you know, and that's what I'm starting to see around me is that people are fleeing and they're running off with younger women who are probably much less complicated than what they've got at home. And I just more and more really respect people who get it done, you know, who can make a great family. I don't think that that's a small thing. I think if you can raise your kids and that they have certain affection for you and for each other, that is a major achievement, major. And I think that it's probably a lot easier to achieve, quote unquote, in other areas. I mean, I think in some ways it's probably easier to run a corporation than it is to raise family because it's just so complex and the interdependencies are so intense and there's so much on the line. You know, you've got your whole family history and your husband's whole family history and now they're blending in these new people and then you add to that, you know, health issues and financial issues and and then everything, you know, about romantic love and sex. And it's just, it's not, it's not a small thing. And I think I took it for granted as a young person. I think I thought that was sort of normal status quo stuff. You know, you get married, you have a kid, you stay together. And the older I get, the more I understand that that's something that you choose every day. You choose to stay and you choose to make it right every day. When you're in your early 20s, to the extent that you even bother thinking ahead to, you know, your mid-40s, mm-hmm. You think that it's like, oh, okay, everything's going to be set into place and we'll pretty much be on cruise control. Absolutely. And that's just not the case. At all. At all. And there's so many choices ahead. Yeah, I I remember thinking that, like, you get married and you have a kid and that's pretty much, like, the last decision you make. I really thought that. And, you know, that's just absurd. It's just absurd. You also have all these strong convictions around nature versus nurture. And I think that I, in particular, was really sure that there that the controls were more obvious. That, that it would there were levers. That there was a control board somewhere, and if you just fooled with the levers enough, you could mastermind a great family. And that's just not the way it is. It's just not the way it is at all. So if you're able to do it, if you're able to manage your relationship, your core relationship, by your marriage, and then you're able to create a family that has like a, a center, you know, that, that actually holds together. I, I think that's just miraculous. Now, what was it like trying to recapture your early 20s frame of mind? I mean, it, it sounds like you were writing a diary yes. when you were down there. Yeah. And I've been writing a diary since seventh grade. So it's very easy for me to recapture things because I just dive in to the pages and then I can kind of augment it by, in this situation, I was traveling with a friend, so she had her diary, so that was a second source. And then a third source was we had letters. And my mom, strangely, because she's not a very nostalgic or sentimental person, had saved all the letters I sent her from Australia. So we had that. And then um, I had tons of photos, obviously, paper photographs. 22 years from now, will I have the pictures I took today on my iPhone? I don't know. But I have the pictures from 1992, and I can, like, touch them all. Then the, then if there were things that were kind of vague to me that were public, like, you know, we went to a concert in uh, Sydney one day, and I was going to tell the story in the book. And I thought, I wonder if there's anything online about it. And I Googled it, and there were these YouTube videos of the this In Excess concert where the Divinals played. Do you remember the Divinals? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I could actually look at it and I could listen to it and remember. And also in this house, there were these two kids, but also this woman had a family. This The family she had with these little kids was her second family. 
and her son from her first marriage, first firstborn, uh, lived in a room off the garage. And he was more or less my age. And he and I used to watch Santa Barbara together every day. He was like a, he worked at a supermarket and he worked like the 12 to 5 a.m. shift uh, stacking boxes. So he was around a lot during the day. I can watch, I can find Santa Barbara episodes online. So I could really remember what was happening in that show. And so sometimes when there's a great detail in the pages, it's because I was able to sort of hunt it down online. And that older son, he's the only one of that family that you were able to, to track down when you decided to try and find them again. After exactly. Exactly. Which you would think would just be a piece of cake. I mean, there, there's another sort of misconception I had is that I thought, give me a half an hour and a high speed connection and I'm going to be able to look at these people. No problem. Obviously I've changed all their names and all the identifying details. So they're totally protected, but they do have kind of ordinary common names I have not been able to find them yet. I have one lead, and I actually sent over a box of books to that person, so we'll see if I found the right one. Now that the story is out there, I assume that the whole time that you've been writing this and, and preparing it for publication, that you've had at least some contact with your mother and some discussion about the story that you're trying to tell. Yeah. But that's a very different thing from it actually being out in the world now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I knew from the first two books that it book changes a lot all the way up through like the 11th hour. And I didn't, I also knew from the first book that it's, it's somewhat unpredictable what people will like and dislike about a book in terms of their own mentions or uh, stories that you've included. And so I wanted to wait until I had really pretty good sense that the book was as close to being in its final form as we could afford to have it be before giving her a chance to look at it. Because I didn't want her atta to attach to something that might get cut or to want to cut something that was important but was about to change. So I shared it with her fairly late in the game, and for like six months there she was saying, when am I going to see these pages? You're making me a little nervous about this. You're not going to like give it to me and tell me it's going to the printers the next day, are you? So I sent it to her, and she said, um, oh, Kelly, I think it's the best one. And I thought, of course, you think it's the best one. It's all about you. But she really thinks that I've grown as a writer and that it, it's better than the first two. So you have to figure out. You have to make your own decision there. So where do you go as a writer from, you know, after the book that your mother thinks is the best? Fiction. Fiction, fiction, fiction. So I have this great, great story, little kernel of a story, and I have a, you know, like a 99-slide outline, all the scenes in the unfolding of this situation. And I'm not going to tell you anything about it, but I really, really, really want to write a great novel. And I am super intimidated, but I'm going to try it anyway. Well, so we will be keeping an eye out in the future for a novel from Kelly Corrigan. Yep. In the meantime, the memoir that we have right now is Glitter and Glue. It's just published by Ballantine Books, and we've been talking about it here on Life Stories. If you're subscribed to this podcast on iTunes, thank you for that. If you're not subscribed through iTunes yet, it's very easy to do. And either way, if you take a moment to rate and review the podcast, that would be great, and it helps make it easier for other people to find it as well. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for another episode soon. Take care.